from the tick-free studios of Univest at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. It is time for another disease-fighting episode of Chemical-Free Horticultural Hijinks, You Bet Your Garden. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. What's the scariest pest waiting for you outdoors? It has to be the terrible tick. On today's show, we'll explain how wearing the correct kind of clothing can protect you from this awful arachnid. Plus, your fabulous phone call questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and artfully articulated assignations. So stay right where you are, cats and kittens, because it's all coming up faster than you passing your tick test every time. Right after this. J.L. Hudson Seeds has supported You Bet Your Garden and enthusiastic growers for more than 25 years. To learn more about the world's most eclectic seed company, visit jlhudsonseeds.net. Welcome to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath. Yes, I am. And coming up later on the show, I am going to help you avoid getting bit by ticks this season. So stay laser focused uh, to your choice of devices or however you're watching, listening, or hovering over us with a drone. All right. But before that, lots of your fabulous phone calls at 888-492-9444. So let us welcome George. Hi, Mike. How are you doing today? I'm just ducky. How is George? Very well, thank you. All right. Uh, oh, where is George very well? Uh, Reading, Pennsylvania. Okay. All right. What can we do for George? Uh, a couple questions. Uh, dogwoods. We have problems with dogwoods. I know they're probably 45, 50 years old, but my mother's concerned. The leaves are curling, and there's a a large amount of lichens going, growing on the bark, and my mom's concerned that if I trim them, they're contagious and they'll spread to my skin. And I said, I do not think so, Mom, but we'll, we'll ask Mike and see what he says. Spread to your skin? Yeah. Well, my mom's 93, and she's has concerns about everything. <laughs> now, our, um, you, you sent us a whole bunch of pictures here. Right. Right. And um, the one that disturbs me the most is the one that looks like Native American carvings in the bark of one of these trees. Okay. That, that carving is from a dead standing white ash, which was done in by the emerald ash borers. That's a very large tree, and you can see all the trails in it and everything yes. like that. That's on a country property, and I just wanted to send that to you because a, a lot of the viewers can see what the borers actually do underneath the bark. I guess they destroy the cambium layer of the tree, and it just dies from lack of nutrients or something they, like that. They create so many little canals um, and roadways that literally they girdle the tree underneath the bark. They okay. just cut off nutrients uh, from top to bottom and bottom to top. So, yep. yeah, uh, emerald ash borer is a big problem, bigger problem than I can solve here today. 
Now, right, right. Now, your mom's not liking your liking. No, no. She doesn't know. There's one tree in particular I sent you a picture of that looks, it's in a deep state of demise. And I said, Mom, we got to cut it down. She's like, no, there's one limb that's still growing and flowering. I'm like, okay. The, the birds like to stand on the perches and whatnot. But I think the neighbors are a little bit disgusted with it. But Well, um, and does this tree have some, some uh, does your mom really like this tree? No, she has no great attachment to it. She just likes to live things live as long as they possibly can mm-hmm. and thinks they should die in her own. I said, we'll ask Mike and see if we should, we should replant one, and if so, should it be white or pink? Is one stronger or more resilient to disease than the other? Um, dogwoods don't like wet feet. And right. okay. they they have a problem in full sun, which your dogwood appears um, to be in. Okay, gotcha. Yes. So the I w- other one is the other one is in shade from high oaks in the western part of the the street. So that might be why it's doing so much better. So it is doing much better. Yeah, yeah. You know, lichen is um, is a unique living creature. It's uh, in my mind, which is severely damaged by the years. Um, to me, it's <laughs> kind of a cross between moss and one of the slime molds. It, okay. Those are the things that pop up in people who foolishly landscape uh, their landscape with wood chips that are dyed and all these nuisance fungi come out. Um, lichen does, well prefers obviously damp conditions it is not deadly it is not directly harming the tree but it is showing you that the tree is on its way out okay thank you now with these kind of uh organisms what i like to do is um when when I cut down a tree or something like that, or we have to move moss out of an area, we take the moss or the lichen and we get a long um, piece of wood, like the biggest part of the trunk of the tree, and we decorate it with the moss and the lichen and make it a central feature. Um, oh, okay. All you gotta do is keep it somewhat shaded and moist and wait some of the some of these things will actually sprout what would be primitive flowers and oh the all sorts you can see how beautiful the colors are right that that sounds interesting yeah it's like the patina on old copper so yes you should uh, cut now are you going to cut it down yourself yes move that car no <laughs> <laughs> the old VW, yes, okay, I'll do that. <laughs> it has an electrical problem, but I'll move it. Yeah, so do I. Um, <laughs> my, my bill. I hear that. Now, have you taken down big trees before? Yes. Okay, so you've got a pole pruner, you've got uh, a hard hat, you've got safety glasses, and you know to take off small chunks at a time. Uh, especially as you work towards the top of the tree. Yes. Okay. All right. What else you want? Um, are mountain ash trees related to 
the American white and green ash, are they susceptible to the emerald ash borer? Uh, I think the borer likes any kind of ash tree. Okay, okay, that eliminates that. Yeah, no, I wouldn't be planting any more ashes. What, you know, what I see on the one that's going to come down, uh, that to me looks like a great place uh, for an ornamental cherry tree, maybe a weeping one. Okay. Put okay. on that great display in the spring. Right. Okay. That sounds like an option. Sure. Yeah. We have, we have to balance it out. You know. That's and and the one that's in the yard that's much smaller and looks very vibrant. That was a white dog that was growing inside the cyclone fence, which my mom had me carefully remove. Mm-hmm. And and I replanted it. It it took it took in the side yard. So we'll see how that goes. I would put in a different plant. Okay. All right. I hear you. So. Tell your mother I said so. And, I will. And say hi for me. We, we love your program, and you're definitely a savant of botany. Yeah, I'm a savant, idiot savant. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, take care, man. Bye-bye. Okay, thank you. See you at the library. You got it. 888-492-9444. Lola, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thank you. Where are you? I'm in Memphis, Tennessee, sir. All right. Always a pleasure to talk to our friends down there. And it's Lola in Memphis. What can we do you for? Sir, I have some elephant ears. And when I moved into the house, they grew and they was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Now, over the years, they're started to get smaller. And I'm, I've been told there's too many bugs down there. Mm-hmm. So I want to dig some of the bulbs up, but I don't know how to take care of them. Somebody well, told me to put them in a brown paper bag. Well, if you if you ask 100 people who don't know anything about gardening, you'll get 100 different answers no matter what. Yes, sir. I, I believe that. So um, the, they haven't shown anything above ground yet? No, they have not. Do you want to do it right away? Or do you want to wait till after um, they're done in the fall, which it would be easier? I, I want to get some of the bulbs up so I can plant them in other spots. That's what I want. Okay, so what you got to do, you want yes. to get a tool called a poacher's spade. Which will work better okay. than a shovel, but if you have a, a sharp okay. shovel, not a flat blade shovel, you can use that. You would dig around the area um, where you think the bulbs are. You want to be far away. You want to give yourself six inches away from where you think the bulbs are, and you want okay. that. And you want that shovel or spade to go deep in the ground. Yes. And then you use the foot pad um, to lift it up, and you'll either okay. you'll either get some bulbs, or now you'll be much closer. So then you okay. do it again, always moving forward. All right, well, sir. I really appreciate this. Thank you so much. Oh, it's our pleasure. Thank you for calling. Well, it's time for Mike to take a little break while we announce his upcoming appearance at the Allentown Public Library on May 7th at 6.30. He'll answer your toughest garden questions, hopefully. 
I'm your audio editor, the lovely Jonas Bowen, and you're listening to an encore performance of You Bet Your Garden, recorded last year at the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden. From the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA, I am your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, tired of finding ticks on your personal person? Well, we have a solution for you that means you won't be saying, did you get it all out yet? All season long. You won't want to miss it. And it's coming up after more of your fabulous phone calls at 888-492-9444. Peter, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Oh, thank you very much, Mike. Oh, thank you, Peter. How are you doing, sir? I'm okay, thank you very much. And And, you? And, oh, I'm just ducky. Ducky. (laughs) And where is Peter okay? I'm okay in Hollidaysburg, Pennsylvania, suburb of Altoona. Oh, okay. Oh, Mm -hmm. right. Um, What can we do you for, sir? Okay, well, first of all, I'm allergic to wasps, hornets, and yellow jackets, but I really hardly, hardly ever see them in the yard. So, but what I do see all the time are my friends, the carpenter bees, which Mm -hmm. I adore because they're so funny. You know, they act like almost like puppies, you know. They come out and they come, they they join you when you go outside and they go along with you as you walk and stuff. And and they're funny as can be. And it's amazing what they can do being such little fat things. But uh, the reason I I thought of that is because I said, wait a second, I've had these carpenter bees for ages. And I wonder if they have anything to do with keeping the bad boys away. The wasps and the hornets and the yellow jackets, because you know they're territorial as can be. Of course, you know when you, walk, you go out the door, they're right on you. Oh you know, yeah, watching what you're doing. They go along with you just like a pet would. You know, it's like a leash on the things. They're so adorable. So uh, I was wondering, could, could they possibly be keeping the, you know, the wasps and the hornets and the yellow jackets out of the yard to a degree? That's a great question, and I think. The basic answer could well be yes. Um, I think, first of all, you know, it is the males who uh, fly around the entrance holes to the galleries. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's for two reasons that I can think of. One is to protect the female inside because, you know, they're mated and the male does not want any other guy to get in there. And But more importantly, you make me think, and it wasn't directly about wasps to begin with, but you make me think about cuckoo bees. Uh-huh. Cuckoo bees are a, a rarely discussed uh, a type of bee, and like cuckoo birds, what they do is they raid the nest of another species, uh, destroy the eggs, and then lay their own eggs in there to be cared for um, by the unknowing regular species that was displaced. So in the case of um, carpenter bees, I would imagine 
that uh, cuckoo bees would want to go in and simply eat the larval forms. I don't mm. think they would lay their own eggs in there, but anything is possible. However, when you mention yellow jackets, absolutely. Yellow jackets would love to get into a colony of carpenter bees and eat everything and everyone inside, especially when they're in their protein uh, feeding stage. And the other, you know, carnivorous stinging insects you mentioned, uh, mud dauber wasps and things like that, um, they, you know, they prey on other insects. And I would think that without the male standing guard outside, uh, they would definitely go into the hole and see what's in there to eat. Absolutely. So that, absolutely. I'm I'm so glad to hear that somebody loves carpenter bees so much. I love them. (laughs) I watch them all the time. I can't believe how fast they can fly when they really chase them on somebody. They chase after each other like crazy, and it's funny as can be. And one of the funniest things in the world is how they try to go through windows. You hear like somebody throwing pebbles on your window, and as they go heading head first into the things, you know, it's hysterical. And they don't seem to hurt themselves, you know, but they're hitting pretty hard. You know that. You've heard them. Oh, yeah. They they just clank away. I've never seen any of the other bees don't do that. These guys just want to go through that window, see (laughs) see what you're doing, and that's it. They're very, very gregarious. They really are. They're very nice. I love the things. They're so funny. They really are hysterical. And when you see how fast they can really fly when they want to, when they're chasing somebody, it's astonishing how quick they can with those little wings they have and their large bodies. It's really amazing, you know? And they are great pollinators. So uh, they wonderful. do good for our flowers and our food and everything like that as well. And they're gentle. Yes. That's well, fun. the males don't have stingers. Uh-huh. I think that's one of the reasons they're built like linebackers is <laughs> you know, that's all they got. You know, the females do have stingers, but they tend not to use them. So uh-huh. the guys are just out there bruising anybody away who's going to harm their family. Absolutely. And the the hole they make is so perfect. It's like a drill in it. Absolutely perfect. Perfectly oh, cylindrical. It's it is. It, it's a miracle of nature. And what people don't understand is they don't eat the wood. They're just carving a place to To have their family, their galleries. And very rarely is structural damage the result. So they're, Uh I mean, I think they're super cool, too. I do, too. I think they're tremendous. You know, they absolutely escort you. you know? They come out to the yard, and they're right next to He's right next to me. It's like I have an invisible leash. He's just coming straight right next to the side of my body, and no, you know, <laughs> nothing that would make you think that any bug like that would be so aware, like a little dog, for crying out loud. They're very, very aware of what's going on. It's amazing how they are. They're very I comfortable they're with themselves. They're the greatest. They really are. And I have a few more questions, too, okay? Let's see. Okay, I'll, I'll be quick. I'll be real quick. Okay, first of all, 
I was thinking about sound because I found an old police whistle I, I gave to my, my nieces and stuff like that and friend girls, you know. And I said, you know, this thing really makes a crazy loud sound, and it's, you know, it has a reverb to it because of the little T inside. I said, I wonder if they could chase away like the nasty boys, too, and really loud and startling sounds. So I, said, I had someone else look up in Google, and Google said, yes, they've had experiments with that stuff, you know, loud noises and stuff, trying to chase down the wasp bear guys. And, uh, and they said they had some some success with the with the with the loudness and with some of the insects, but they didn't specify which ones they had. So I, that's about as far as I could get with that. I came across this research recently. Um, some of it, most of it, was about mosquitoes, and it didn't seem to be effective uh, okay. whatsoever. Um, there's uh, other ways to handle those creatures. Yeah, I got that. I have the bracelets. No, no, bracelets don't work. You have to, uh-huh. you have to get um, like a botanical mosquito repellent and put it on your skin. The bracelets have been shown to be totally fraudulent. Really? Yeah. Wow, here am I going around. So you're talking about if I had liquid citronella, I put that on my skin or something, I can't, and that would work. Yeah, you know, generally it's a concoction of lemon-scented herbs, um, yeah. but don't be using anything that's not, you know, in a bottle, professionally made. Okay, so you know, because it's funny because I've had them for ye- I've been using them for years, and I've been thinking they're going to protect me because if I take a look at here, this has a geranium oil and also has. A- has let me see, take a look. Oh, give me one little second. Take a look. Geranium oil has citronella oil, and it has uh, the uh, lemongrass oil. Yes, that's what these things have. Yeah, and uh, you say they're no, they're useless anyway, even though they have these things. Well, yes, but the, uh, uh, just having it on your wrist or your ankle isn't going to protect your face or your neck or anything like that. Uh huh. All right, okay, Lamb. Well, Listen. Okay, one more, one more thing, real quick. Five years ago, you said cut the grass four inches. Yeah. Ever since then, the grass has been terrific. I haven't had to put anything on the grass at all. I don't have to even water it. It's phenomenal. I don't need pesticides. I don't ever use pesticides or herbicides anyway and stuff like that. But I don't have to do anything with it, and the grass comes out great. You know, sometimes the answers are easy. Exactly. Well, thanks a lot for telling me about the bracelets and stuff like that. And uh, I'll, I'll do as you say, some sort of a liquid. And uh, because you say the braces aren't any good because they're not going to be strong enough to protect your your face and your neck and stuff. They've been tested, and they don't work. Oh, it's amazing how they sell them. Okay, Mike, it's been great talking to you, man. Thanks you very too, much Peter. for your help, and it's great. So you take care. Thanks very much for everything. Bye-bye. It was my pleasure. Bye-bye, you take Mike. care, pal. Mine too, Mike. Bye-bye. Well, once again, it is time for our special segment in the news where I find an interesting newspaper article and convey the information to you. The headline on this one, Can Dogs Combat the Spotted Lanternfly? It ran in my local newspaper, The Morning Call, on April 15th. It's written by Paul Avigna, who works for Pen Alive. Uh, dot com. And it is, it's just marvelous. Um, there is a project that's unofficially called the Canine Citizen Science Study, 
which began two years ago at a lab at Texas Tech and has recently expanded to the East Coast, where they are working with dog owners to encourage their canines to sniff out spotted lanternfly egg masses before they can hatch. This is a real serious problem in Pennsylvania. These people, these people, these pests may not have gotten to your region yet, but they are death to grapevines. And it was the local wine industry that is actively seeking this solution. Our story, Paul writes, follows Flint, an eight-year-old border collie. Previously trained as a cadaver dog, he is now sniffing out the egg masses that lanternflies lay in the fall and that hatch in the spring. Pennsylvanians were the first to become acquainted with these invasive insects, which were discovered in Berks County back in 2014. Several vineyards were wiped out by spotted lanternfly, which also can harm trees, crops, and many other types of plants. And dogs, of course, have been used to detect missing people, narcotics, explosives, all the time making use of their, wait for it, 300 million smell receptors. Dogs have good sniffers. Flint was recently let loose at the Alson H. Smith Jr. Agricultural Research and Extension Center in Winchester, Virginia. And he did a great job. He even pointed with his paw when he hit pay dirt, realizing, of course, that he got a treat every time he did it right. In conclusion, it is, quote, a great opportunity for people to have fun with their dogs while also contributing back to their communities in a meaningful way. So keep an eye out for this, especially if you're in a lanternfly infested area. They are really damaging uh, to vineyards And dogs, you know, they want to work. They love doing this kind of thing and getting rewarded and congratulated. So be on the lookout uh, for the possibility of training classes in your area or talk to your vet or your local extension service about it. This is from the Allentown Morning Call, Sunday, May 14th under regional news from the Associated Press. Tiny bats provide hope against fungus deadly to species. Now, we all know about white nose syndrome, a nasty fungus that causes hibernating bats to wake up um, well before their time. And they come out, and it's too cold, and there's no bugs to eat and they die off. This has caused losses of over 90% of hibernating bat colonies across the country and perhaps even the world. But as nature would have it, um, nature finds a way. And we're now seeing some bats 
that survive the fungus finish their hibernation and come out when um, the bugs are flying. So this is from Dorset, Vermont. Quote, deep in a cool, damp cave, tens of thousands of furry chocolate brown creatures stir. The tiny brown bats are survivors of a deadly fungus that decimated their population. Going into hibernation last fall, now in early May, they're waking, detaching from their rock wall roosts and making their first tentative flights in search of the moths, beetles, and other flying insects they devour. This is great news. This is adaption. This is Darwin on a stick. Uh, their health hints that at least some species are adapting to the fungus that has killed millions of their brethren across North America. That's really significant because it seems to be creating a stronghold where these bats are mostly surviving and then spreading out throughout New England in the summer, said Alyssa Bennett, a small mammal biologist for the Vermont Department of Fish and Wildlife. We're hoping that it's a source population for them to recover. Um, the decimation that has occurred has been close to unbelievable. Um, scientists now estimate that between 70,000 and 90,000 bats hibernate in the Dorset Cave, the largest concentration in New England. But those numbers have dwindled from an estimated winter population of 300,000 to 350,000 or more in the 1960s before white nose disease or white nose fungus um, was first observed. And it matters. First of all, I love being out on a summer evening and seeing my little brown bats fly uh, across my garden. But I remember growing up in a row home in Philadelphia, and every time it got dark, hundreds of bats would fly out. These are row homes. Um, but we also had streetlights that attracted a lot of moths and stuff. So they eat so many pest insects. The U.S. Geological Survey estimates that bats boost U.S. agriculture by $3.7 billion a year by eating crop-destroying insects, such as larva-laying moths whose offspring decimate many plants. So there's something special about these bats, Bennett said of Dorset's Little Browns. We can't tell exactly what it is, but we know that something is allowing them to tolerate the disease and pass those features on to their young. So file this under good news, cats and kittens. Uh, bats are our friends. Just don't let them get caught in your hair. Well, it's time for Mike to take a little break while we announce that his upcoming appearance at the Allentown Public Library will be on May 7th at 6.30 p.m. He'll answer your toughest garden questions. Maybe. I'm your audio editor, the lovely Jonas Bowen, and you're listening to an encore performance 
of You Bet Your Garden, recorded last year at the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Univest at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath, and we're in the stretch now, cats and kittens, in just a little bit. News you can really use. How to prevent yourself from getting tick bitten when you're outdoors this season. You won't want to miss that. And you shouldn't, unless you walk away, because it's coming up soon, right after phone calls, 888-492-9444. Dave, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Help me out. Thank you, Mike. With your expertise in gardening, I'm not sure you need much help, but I am here. (laughs) I I need more help than I can afford. Oh, dear. Uh, How you doing, man? I'm doing wonderfully. It is a beautiful day in Berks County. Okay, where in Berks? I'm in Mertztown, which is actually not very far from Kutztown University. Oh, okay, that's a great area. Uh, what can I we love it? What can we do you for? I have, uh, when my wife and I purchased this land, we always wanted to have different trees for different members of the family. Oh, that's interesting. And I have always wanted to get a copper beech for my daughter. Now, I know they're tough for tough to grow, and we have dead neutral soil. So I need to know the pluses and minuses of that particular tree in my soil and whether or not it's really a good idea. Um, is your daughter a Sherlock Holmes fan? <laughs> no, actually, she isn't. She's just loved the trees that are down at Longwood Gardens that we know very well here in Pennsylvania. Yes, uh, it is a magnificent tree. Um, I'm not sure about the uh, necessity or uh, whether it's a good idea to try to grow it from seed, even though, of course, it does drop those famous beech nuts. Um, I think this is a, it, the tree is very slow growing, um, but eventually does reach a height of around 30 to 50 feet. And the foliage in the fall, as you know, is unsurpassed. I mean, there's just, it's copper, right? Yeah, it's gorgeous. Um, I would, and it, but it's perfectly acclimated to your climate. You're right in the middle of its uh, USDA zone distinctions. And what I would do is look around um, right around you, like between you and Redding, I believe there are a couple of very large tree farms that raise trees commercially. And I would get in touch with them and see what it would cost you to get you know, a two-year-old tree, a three-year-old, a four-year-old, and I would wait until the fall at this point to install it. Um, okay. Because the first summer is often brutal on newly planted trees. But a tree planted in the fall has a better survival rate than even a tree planted in the spring. So, I mean, that's... Go ahead, sir. 
I was just going to say excellent. That I'm just concerned if there's any with all the new um, problems of different fungi and and not fun guys. Mm-hmm. If there's any disease that I need to be particularly concerned about for this tree. Well, you know, any tree can be subject um, to some diseases, um, but a lot of times it's cultural. Um, Something went wrong with the planting. The weather just blew everything off the map. I think these are pretty sturdy trees. Now, it's been a while since I researched them, but I would urge you to, because you bring up a great point, uh, there will be named varieties that you will find for sale around the area. And, you know, you do want to look for disease resistance to any common problems. But um, beech is not, beech is a totally underutilized tree, in my opinion. Mm. And I don't think it's because of any problems. I think it's because it is such a slow grower, which means you should buy the oldest tree you can afford. And then in the fall, uh, you know, end of August, as soon as the heat breaks, if it, if it ever breaks, um, <laughs> you want to dig a wide hole, not a deep one, remove all the wrappings from your tree, no matter what anybody else tells you. Get rid of the burlap, get rid of the steel cage, If the roots seem to be compressed, spread them out. It would be a good idea to soak the root system in water for a couple of hours before you plant it. Plant it so that the root flare is visible above ground. Fill the hole in with the same soil you removed and then mulch it with an inch of compost and let a hose drip at the base um for like eight hours the first time and then let that hose drip at the base any week we don't get water including warm spells in the winter the first year of a tree's life um is the most fragile and you're going to make you're going to make a good investment and you're going to take good care of it and it will thrive wonderful that's wonderful news I appreciate it. I love your program, and thank you so much for all you've done over the years, uh, going back to Philadelphia Flower Show days with Rodale. Oh, good Lord. Yes, those were wonderful days. By the way, in case people are wondering, uh, beech nut chewing gum um, is not made uh, from beech tree nuts or anything like that. Uh, Beech nut was... A, a, a brand name for ham. It used to be called Imperial Ham, but that didn't sound right to people, so they called it Beech Nut. Uh, so the people would think of that wonderful color bark and leaves, and then a whole company evolved around it, and eventually, in addition to hams, they started making chewing gum. <laughs> and that's, Wow, that's neat. That's where Beech Nut gum comes from. Never knew that. Thank you for that as well. Oh, I got so much useless advice up here. <laughs> All right, man. That's why we appreciate you every week. Yeah, that's right. All right. Thank you so much, and you take thank care. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. You too. Stay safe. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
As promised, it is time for the question of the week, and a very timely question it is. We're calling it How to Outwit Terrible Ticks. Slater in Williamsport, PA, which he describes as being on the fringes of reception from Penn State's fabulous WPSU, writes, In the past, you have discussed permethrin-treated clothing as an effective means of avoiding ticks and the diseases they carry. It certainly works for me. I no longer get ticked. You are a strong promoter of organic methods, and yet your care for people has kept you from being a blind ideologue when it comes to dangerous ticks. My respect for you has only increased. The weather is now warming up. Perhaps it's time for a reminder to your listeners. P.S. As bad as Lyme disease is, some of the pathogens they carry are even worse. My buddy almost died from a different tick-borne disease right here in central P.A. Well, you are correct, Slater. One of my favorite people, Marty Singleton, who was co-chair of the security committee at the Philadelphia Folk Festival, contracted Rocky Mountain spotted fever while out target shooting one day. This once giant and gentle bear of a man became unrecognizable during his months-long hospital stay, never recovered, and died of the disease. The CDC has identified eight different specific pathogens and diseases spread by ticks, with Rocky Mountain spotted fever considered the deadliest and Lyme disease the best known. Now, I have held bees that have stingers in my bare hands. I have picked up a large snapping turtle by its tail which makes them go into play-dead possum mode, hopefully. And I view spiders and snakes as my beloved garden protectors. Yeah, turtles too, but who doesn't like turtles? And yet a photo or a video of a tick always sends me right into squirmy mode. If they serve a purpose in our ecosystem, we still have one of those, right? I'll be darned if I can figure out what it is. Mosquitoes keep many species of songbirds and dragonflies well-fed. But ticks? Come on. Damn you for being thorough, Noah. Anyway, Slater is also correct that permethrin is the number one answer. DEET and many non-chemical botanical alternatives are effective against mosquitoes if you cover every exposed area of your body. But DEET is absorbed through your skin and exits your body via your liver and kidneys, perhaps making it the next draft choice for the Roundup Award of, but you told us it was safe. DEET also has no effect on ticks and may actually attract them. Permethrin is a synthetic form of the botanical insecticide pyrethrum, which is made from the dried flowers of a certain species of daisy. The natural form works well, but degrades quickly. The synthetic form 
is designed to remain active despite exposure to air and sunlight and is deadly to ticks in a manner that no other compound can approach. Virtually all studies agree that ticks cannot survive on permethrin-treated clothing for more than a few minutes. More intriguing studies suggest that the little bloodsuckers might begin to die when they're less than a foot away. And yes, I said clothing. Permethrin is meant to be applied to your clothes. You should not apply it directly to your skin, not because it will harm you in any way, but because your body temperature would aerosolize it away. The air between you and your clothes helps prevent this. There are a few 100%s in gardening, but I have never been bitten while wearing my protective pants, socks, and hat. Brrr, yes, they can drop down on top of you from trees. But I have been bitten when I was lazy and didn't wear my tick-proof clothes. Many people spray a set or two of their own clothes monthly. These sprays are available at any store with a camping or hunting section, and of course online. You hang the clothes outdoors, spray all sides thoroughly, and let the laundry dry for several hours before wearing. Be sure to purchase sprays that contain only permethrin. DEET is useless against ticks. Ah, but permethrin does repel mosquitoes as well. In an abundance of caution, I recommend you have a fan blowing the mist away from you while you're spraying and keep cats out of the area as they are very sensitive to permethrin. You can also buy clothing that has been professionally treated from several sources, including L.L. Bean and a company known as Insect Shield. The repellency factor of pre-treated clothes lasts much longer than clothes you treat yourself. Insect Shield, for instance, claims its treatments will outlast 100 washings. You can also send some companies your own clothes to be professionally treated. Hey, and I want to thank Slater for his compliment. It was a difficult decision for me to recommend permethrin, as it is not organic. But he's right. I made that choice because I recognize the dangers that ticks present. Also, the material doesn't enter the environment. It stays on your clothes and doesn't get into our food, bodies, or soils. This is what the great Bill Quarles, Ph.D., calls common sense pest control, in which you use the safest materials possible. Thanks again, Slater. Of course, there are other preventions you can employ. Chickens, ducks, geese, and especially guinea hens are alpha predators of ticks. Controlling mice on your property can greatly reduce the number of ticks. And be sure to keep any tall, grassy areas in your landscape as neat as possible. Ticks love the moist cover they provide. So don't you go strolling through that meadow of yours without protection.
Well, that sure was some helpful information about how not to get bit by ticks this season, now wasn't it? Luckily for you, the question of the week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. To read it over at your leisure or, of course, your leisure, just click the link for the question of the week at our website, which is still and will forever be YouBetYourGarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden question of the week, and you will always find the latest question of the week at the Gardens Alive website. Yikes, my producer is threatening to poach my permethrin if I don't get out of this studio. We must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 888-492-9444 or send us your email, you're tired, you're poor, you're wretched, refuse, teeming, teeming towards our garden shore at ybyg at wlvt.org. Please, please include your location. I'm an old man. My heart can't stand it. Tell us where you live, okay? You Bet Your Garden is a half-hour public television show available for viewing on PBS 39, PBS 39 Extra, PBS Passport, and our website. It is also an hour-long public radio show and podcast, and all of this wonderful stuff is produced and delivered to you from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Our radio show is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. You Bet Your Garden was created by Mike McGrath. Mike McGrath was created when he traded the family's magic beans for a cow. Ken Queter is our musical director. Our chief content officer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our angel of the airways is Christine Dempsey. Our sound engineer and set decorator is cheerful Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda Norfleet. Send her pretty pictures of your garden at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Teresa Radke is our peerless princess of profound production. Our audio editor is the always lovely Jonas Bowen. Judicious Jake Boyer does the video. Our directorial director of direction is the harassed and harried Javier Diaz. We also present, for your dining and dancing pleasure, Jacob Morris, Zach the Tack, and our beloved band of carnies, card sharks, roustabouts, and fortune tellers. Our CEO is Tim Fallon. I'm your host and executive producer, Mike McGrath, in Bethlehem, PA. Okay? So have fun, stay safe, and I'll see you right here next week. J.L. Hudson Seeds has supported You Bet Your Garden and enthusiastic growers for more than 25 years. To learn more about the world's most eclectic seed company, visit jlhudsonseeds.net.